Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Beaumont. And I'm Paul Duncan. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. And if you believe in the Songcraft mission, please consider supporting us by visiting patreon.com slash songcraftshow. Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Mike Campbell is best known as the lead guitarist for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, but is also a prolific songwriter who co-wrote some of the band's best-known classics. Among them are Refugee, Here Comes My Girl, You Got Lucky, Running Down a Dream, Making Some Noise, and You Wreck Me. He's also a co-writer of the Stevie Nicks duet Stop Dragging My Heart Around, as well as the Don Henley classics The Heart of the Matter and Boys of Summer, the latter of which earned Mike a Grammy nomination for Song of the Year. In addition to collaborating with Petty, Nicks, and Henley, Campbell has written songs with Bob Dylan, John Prine, Jeff Lynne, Chris Stapleton, The Dixie Chicks, Roger McGuinn, Cheap Trick, Marty Stewart, J.D. Souther, Susanna Hoffs, and others. He's performed on albums by a list of luminaries that includes Aretha Franklin, Johnny Cash, Roy Orbison, Jackson Brown, Bob Seger, Linda Ronstadt, Michael McDonald, and Warren Zevon. Additionally, the 10-time Grammy nominee was named one of the top 100 guitarists by Rolling Stone magazine. In recent years, Campbell has been focused on his previous side project, The Dirty Knobs. Though they formed over 20 years ago, the group released its debut album in 2020. Their second album and most recent release is called External Combustion. Part 1. Well, this is our very special 200th episode of Songcraft. It is crazy to look back and say we have had 200 conversations with some of the world's greatest songwriters, had some of the most exciting moments of our friendship together, yeah. Paul, uh, of, of going and, and meeting people like Smokey Robinson, of, of talking to people like Elvis Costello on the phone and getting to pick his brain about writing songs. I mean, we could fill a book with just the behind-the-scenes fun experiences that we've had. And, and to look back and say, man... Just two guys sitting down together at lunch one day going, hey, we should start a podcast, right. having no idea what we were doing and and building this thing and building the listenership and truly making it into something that preserves these amazing conversations with some of the finest songwriters in the world. You know, you reach that point and you say, number 200, I quit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean... In a sense, yes, but we're not we're not quitting like long term. <laughs> but I see what you're saying there. Yeah, we are going to take a bit of a break, and I, I don't know if uh, if you guys listened to the last episode or if you got through us talking about Ringo Starr's toes <laughs> for the first twenty minutes. But we we did give a bit of a hint that this was coming. You know, here we are at at our two hundredth episode. And uh, both of us with a lot of plates spinning in our lives. Indeed. And uh, and it just seems like a good time just to take a minute. And yeah. I don't know of too many other podcasts that have this many episodes. Some of my favorites only got up to 12, 15, 20. 
And I think that we just kept trying to get it right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, <thought that laughs> we were maybe by two hundred we'd have figured out how to do this. Yeah, and uh, then we we're like, well, we I guess we're not gonna. Uh, we still haven't figured it out. We're just, so we're, yeah. just gonna, we're gonna take uh, some time to read about podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> it's time for us to figure better. out how to make a podcast, yeah. and then we're gonna return. Uh, you know, I said on the last episode that we'd been doing this for seven years. I was wrong. It's actually eight years. Uh, eight years and two hundred episodes makes for a pretty solid season one. Yeah, and uh, exactly. as Paul said, there's some other things in both of our lives that are just kind of taking our attention for the moment. Um, we uh, are not going to disappear. We're not going to leave you with this announcement and fade away. We are going to return. In fact, we know exactly how long we're going to be gone and when we're going to come back, but we're not going to tell you just yet because, no. uh, you know, we want to make you uh, miss us a little bit first. Um, but we will be coming back in 2023, and uh, we're going to have some more great episodes, some more fantastic conversations with great songwriters. But, um, you know, we thought that, that 200 would be a good time to just temporarily uh, put a pin in it and... Uh, Man, I couldn't be more thrilled uh, about having the opportunity to to do this podcast with my longtime uh, music geek buddy, and uh, and you know the fact that we even get to do this is incredible. And this particular episode for me is an incredible one to end on. I mean, dude, if you'd have told me at the beginning that we'd get to talk to Mike Campbell of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, are you kidding me? Maybe one of the coolest guys on the planet. And not only the songs that he did with with Tom and the Heartbreakers, but you know songs like uh, Don Henley's Boys of Summer. Yeah. I mean, this guy was everywhere, not only as a writer, but as a producer. And it, it really felt like a fitting one to end on because what an incredible piece of the American music catalog this guy represents. Absolutely. And speaking of the American music catalog, you and I went to John Fogarty at the Hollywood Bowl recently, yeah. and um, that was uh, a great show. So, you know, um, John sounds good. His band is good. It's I mean, it was really it was super solid show. And I think it sort of reignited our love for for credence i went on yeah. a real credence bender for for days yeah after i'm kind of still there yeah yeah uh and and you sort of dissect those credence songs um gosh what made this such a great band and you know what made credence a great band was almost the simplicity and the tastefulness of it mm. because you realize as a guitar player, John Fogarty can shred. Yeah. Uh, but it's the fact that he doesn't shred right. in the right places. It's the the space. Uh, it's the taste. It's it's just you know they were such a fabulous band, which got us talking about can one even pick the greatest American rock band? And I said, you know, that's an impossible task. But for me, uh, my top three in no particular order would definitely be Creedence Clearwater Revival, the band and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And the thing that all three of those have in common is incredibly tasteful hmm. musicianship. You have musicians who are, they could probably play anything they wanted, and they could probably play circles around anybody they wanted. But when they put those songs together, they do so in such a way where they allow for breath, they allow yeah. for um, each note to count, and they don't start out with this need to go, let me trip over myself showing you everything I can do in every song. Well, and it plays on something that I think is inherently American, and we've seen a lot of it lately, which is listening. <laughs> <laughs> 
the ability to respond appropriately. Right. We listen to each other more than yeah. ever in this country. No, we? you know, you, uh, your list of, of greatest American bands is, is hard to quibble with, but it's actually, it, it's a difficult uh, subject to wade into because so many of the bands that we consider amazing rock bands really are British rock bands. Right. And you talk about the canon, you talk about, you know, the Stones and the Beatles and the Who and Zeppelin. You're like, well, okay, British, 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 British. But the position of greatest American rock band has never really been established. No one's ever like settled on, you know, you know, we can agree this is the Michael Jordan of American music. So I think all the ones that you just described have a total claim to that throne. But I don't think you can leave out the Eagles. Right. And I don't think you can leave out the Beach Boys. Yeah. yeah. And the Beach Boys in particular had, they had the ability to be mentioned in the same breath as mm. the Beatles and the Stones. Um, but when you look at just like sheer output, yeah, and you look at the number of hits, uh, it's pretty hard to match up with Credence. Yeah, um, I would say if you um, said to someone, um, "All right, show me everything that CCR and the band and the Heartbreakers did that wasn't cool," you, you, you'd have a tough <laughs> right. time, right? But if you said, "Show me everything that the Beach Boys and the Eagles did that wasn't cool," uh, I think it'd be a little easier to come up with some some evidence. Like, well, but sure. I fully agree with you yeah. that that they should absolutely be in the conversation of uh, of best American rock band. But there's that there is something that skews the category in my mind a little bit. If doing it. uncool things is going to rule you out, <laughs> then I respectfully withdraw the Beach Boys. <laughs> um, but I, you know that, and that's that's just that's just Kokomo talking, right? <laughs> but I mean, if you go back and you want to hold up Pet Sounds, I think Pet Sounds might be great enough to cancel out Kokomo. Right? No, for sure, for sure, absolutely. Uh, but to talk to Mike, I, that felt to me like we were tapping into something. I felt like we were tapping into a piece of not only our history as listeners, but of what has just sort of driven American music in the last you know forty years, yeah, or more, yeah, yeah. And you listen to a guy like that who. Um, had some of his greatest songwriting success in the 80s, which is not a decade that we look back on now with particular regard in terms of mm. tastefulness. Right. And you listen to A Boys of Summer, you know, you listen to any of the stuff that the Heartbreakers are doing, and it's like they were huge hits of the time, but they don't sound bound by the time. Like you listen to those records now right. and you're like, guys, records still sound great. Right. You know, that, that and a lot of eighties stuff that, that were, you know, was some huge hits at the yeah. time you listen now and you're like, okay, I have an affinity for this because I remember it. Uh, and, and I associate it with certain, you know, moments in my life or whatever, but as a record, like, eh, right. it doesn't hold up. Yeah. So this, uh, a huge thrill for us. And, and it's, it's so nice to have this as the 200th because honestly, who would we follow it with? Yeah, you know, we, we follow it with an extended break, and I think that's uh, <laughs> that's going to be a testament to to Mike's greatness and to the greatness of this episode. If I can just if I can just brag on the episode, because he's I'll just say. so freaking cool. He is that cool. He has probably never worn a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> he's definitely never gone to the grocery store and, and flip flops showing his toes out. No, no, he's he would not be that guy. And if you're wondering what are you talking about, episode one to our previous yeah. episode, and, uh, <laughs> and and you'll see part two. Mike, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to speak with you. Um, your most recent album release is External Combustion by Mike Campbell and the Dirty Knobs. And uh, even though you guys didn't 
put out your first album until two years ago. Uh, I understand that the band actually formed more than 20 years ago as a, a side project to your work with the Heartbreakers. Um, talk a bit about how the, the Dirty Knobs came about and and how that band served you creatively when you were already, you know, a very busy guy, musically speaking. Yeah. Well, the Dirty Knobs kind of came together very organically. I wasn't looking for a band per se, uh, but I met uh, the guitar player Jason at a session and we hit it off. And then uh, later on, uh, my roadie suggested a drummer, Matt Log, and he suggested a bass player and they came over to help me cut some demos and just play in the studio. And those are the first guys that showed up and it just, it just worked. So I didn't like audition a band or anything. It just sort of evolved as friends. And uh, it was always a, a, a song workshop type of band for fun. And uh, between Heartbreakers tours, we got a little group of songs. So we would go out and start playing little uh, biker bars and stuff to try the songs out live. And we found that we really loved playing uh, live together. And uh, so that just kept going for a while. And then when my life changed, that became my uh, total focus. You know, there were a couple songs um, on the Heartbreakers Mojo album in, in 2010, uh, First Flash of Freedom and Good Enough. I understand that those actually began as Dirty Knob songs. Uh, was there kind of like a bit of cross-pollinization with the stuff you were writing through that time? Or were there certain songs that you said, hey, these are definitely Heartbreaker songs or these are definitely Dirty Knob songs? Well. When uh, Tom was here, he was always my priority. Although when I'm writing, I don't think about writing for this or that person. I just write. Hmm. And then afterwards, I look at it and I go, well, Tom might like this or he might not. I'll give it a, a shot and I'd send him stuff. And if he liked it, he would write to them. And if he didn't like the other ones, I would either discard them or put them on the shelf. And as years went on, uh, I ended up having a lot of extra stuff just laying around. So I thought this... Uh, Dirty Knobs would be a good way to to flesh those songs out, maybe try writing them and singing them myself just to see what they might sound like. And so it grew out of that. Um, so, yeah, First Flash of Freedom was a piece of music that we actually, I forget what my title was, or maybe it was an instrumental, but we played it in a few uh, live bars. And I thought, well, this, this is a good piece of music. People like this. And fortunately, Tom liked it too, and he wrote that great song to it. A fistful of glory, a suitcase of sand The language you dream in when you count to ten Yeah, some of the other songs over the years were started out in the Dirty Knobs workshop and found their ways to uh, Tom's desk occasionally. You know, uh, listening through this new record, I'm, I'm struck uh, not only by the great guitar tones and all the things that I've come to associate with you and your work, but the lyrics. Um, a song like State of Mind, um, you know, took, took me to an emotional place right away. Oh, good. You left an empty space in my life 
Are you a person who normally, you know, nine times out of ten starts with a riff? Or did some of these start with concepts and, and thoughts and things that you wanted to say and then you found the musical bedding to put around it? That's a good question. In the past, it was always a, a guitar thing or a piece of chords or whatever. But as I've grown older, um, I've found that I, sometimes I'll get a lyric or sometimes I'll get, you know, a melody in my head first and then I'll go to the guitar mm. and flesh it out. So it happens all different kinds of ways. Well, I want to go back to your early years. I understand that you grew up in, in Panama City, Florida. No, no, no. I was born there. I was I never spent any time there. Okay. So Jacksonville then was where you spent most of your time as a kid? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Set me straight. You've got the cities right, but you've got the time frame wrong. I'll give you a quick rundown. I was yeah. born in Panama City. I'm a military brat. My dad was in the Air Force. We moved around a lot. Uh, my sister was born in Casablanca when my dad was stationed there. Wow. I went to elementary school and junior high in Orlando. And then I went, when my parents divorced, I went to high school in Jacksonville. And then I went to college in Gainesville. So that's wow. my story. Got See, it. we grew up in Tennessee, so we spent more time in Panama City than you did. <laughs> Probably. I mean, I've never even been there. Yeah. Really, I haven't been there since. I should drive through it someday. Actually, I have been there. I went there on tour once. And I remember it because I went to a guitar store and got this great Fender 12 string. <laughs> See, there <laughs> nice, you go. Nice. Um, you basically, obviously, were, were kind of bouncing around Florida as as a kid growing up. And, and by the time you're in high school um, and, you know, at, right after those years in the early 70s, you're playing guitar in this band called Mud Crutch. And that obviously is a band that also included Tom and, and Ben Montench. And that was the core of the, the future Heartbreakers. Um even though you guys were, were popular in North Florida, you decided to head to California to seek your, your music business future. Um, but I'm curious because that was kind of an era when, you know, the Allman Brothers Band and, and Leonard Skinner were staying in South Georgia and North Florida and doing it from there, you know. And it's kind of the first time I think a lot of rock bands were kind of doing it from the South rather than heading for New York or, or California. So I'm curious for you guys um, in that era, what drew you to, to the West coast as the place where you wanted to set up shop? Well, Leonard Skinner and the Almond brothers uh, did uh, record and work from the South. There was only two studios that I remember. One was in Miami called criteria where we went down and cut a few demos once. And the other one was Capricorn studios up in Macon. And we went up there and they rejected us. Mm. So we weren't really in that mold. You know, the, uh, Tom and I, there's a lot of that Southern rock around us, which I, I've learned to appreciate over the years. But at the time, you know, we weren't really coming from that source. We were coming more from a British uh, 60s band type of approach, you know, right. um, uh, shorter songs and melodies and, and this and that and Beatles and Stones. That was our, our point of reference. So uh, after a while, we realized, well, you know, they don't want us in Atlanta and we don't want to go to Miami. We can either go to New York or L.A. and try. That's where all the record companies are. So we picked L.A. because we thought the weather would be better. Right. Which it is. <laughs> and sure. we just headed out, you know, a couple, you know, a bunch of greenhorns on a, in a bus heading for the West Coast, you know. <laughs> wow. <laughs> 
Well, after you know one single written by Tom called Depot Street that was on Leon Russell's Shelter Records, Mudgrutch uh, disbanded. But you, Tom, and Benmont would reemerge a couple years later as Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and the lead track on the band's self-titled debut album for Shelter was Rockin' Around. Yeah. I, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, you, you wrote that with Tom, and we talked a little bit about process uh, in the later days, but I've heard, you know, Paul McCartney talks about when he and John were living eyeball to eyeball, mm-hmm. and the way they would write, you know, kind of just looking into each other's eyes in those days. W- when you guys were in such close proximity, young guys, you know, in a van, apartments, all that kind of stuff. Was it more of a, hey, we're in this from the first note to the last note, writing them together? Or was there still kind of a, you're starting with musical concepts and bringing them to Tom? We never sat eyeball to eyeball. That always seemed intimidating to me. Hmm. You know, like I was more comfortable, and I think maybe he was too, of working on my idea alone and making all the mistakes and corrections and then presenting it to him yeah, and seeing what he thought. Uh, we, we never did that. And I, I find that fascinating because it's just to sit there and pull it out of the air, eyeball to eyeball, is a little uh, scary to me. Yeah, right. Because you never know where what idea is going to come. And if you're alone, you can self-edit. If you're not, then you're throwing it out there in front of the other person, you know. Right. So we never did that. And it, it was just our system of working and rocking around with you was not the first song we ever wrote together. It's the first song that ever made it to a record. We wrote a few songs back in Florida where I would do the music and he'd write the words. But that was uh, started on the guitar. And a funny, interesting thing about that album, that first album, is uh, we, uh, Denny Cordell, who was our guru and, and uh, leader, you know, spiritual leader in our musical dream, he... Uh, at the last second, decided, you know, I'm going to swap side one and side two. I think it album should start with Rockin' Around With You rather than American Girl. Hmm. And uh, so that's the first song that comes on. Wow. And uh, I still love that song. I mean, it's just a riff. And he came up, you know, with some clever words and great harmonies and stuff. And uh, it was done pretty quick, you know, analog, of course, back in the day. Yeah. Right, right. And I can't hey. stop wrote a couple of additional songs uh hurt and babies of rock and roll are on the, the second heartbreakers release but it was really that third record the now classic damn the torpedoes that uh produced what i believe was probably your first charting single as a songwriter uh refugee uh which hit the charts in 1980 <laughs> Well, Refugee, by that time, uh, my wife, God bless her, uh, supported me in buying a TAC four track. Hmm. And uh, so I had that at my house that we were renting and I was messing around on that. And I wanted some chords that I could practice my lead guitar over, you know, so I just I was listening to this song, Oh, Pretty Woman by Albert King. Hmm. 
Mm. which is in that same key. And I was playing that. And so I kind of bastardized that those chords into my own chords and made a little demo so I could, you know, and played some lead guitar along with it. And somewhere in there, I came up with the intro line and uh, I finished a little demo, put a bass on it and, you know, and showed it to Tom and he wrote that incredible song to it. So it was really a a blues inspired uh, music. And then he, you know, he, he got that idea for don't have to live like a refugee and fight to be free and all that stuff. It was pretty stunning. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Refugee was the, the second single from that album. And the first single was don't do me like that, which, uh, Tom wrote solo, but you were a co-writer on the B side of that one. And you know, whether a guy writes the A side or the B side, he gets paid the same amount of money every time a, a copy of that single sells. Uh, and then, Oh really? You know, I didn't know that. I'm, <laughs> I've owed some royalties. Get the attorneys on the phone right now. <laughs> um, you know, radio play, maybe that's different, but uh, but for sales. Um, yeah. So, But you were also a writer on the, the A side of the third single, Here Comes My Girl, which is another classic song. And, you know, this is the era when you guys really were breaking through, you know, hitting the top 10 for the first time, selling more records than ever before. Um, I would imagine that being a, a writer on those songs has to be the point where the game really kind of changes for you in terms of knowing that, you know, as a songwriter, uh, you're, you have a solid income stream that beyond performing alone, um, was, was there any kind of conscious shift for you in that era in terms of your thinking of, of like, Hey, this is, this is, this is it. This is my life. Now I know that I can do this forever. It has, it has worked. I don't know if I ever looked at it that way. You know, we were so busy. I mean, I remember writing the, the music to those songs and give them to Tom. And, you know, it's like, it's a mysterious thing, these songs, they, where they come from. Anyway, I had that, those pieces of music and Tom wrote those two songs and played them for Jimmy Iovine, who was gonna produce our next record. And he said, that's all I need. You don't have to write any more songs. You guys do whatever else you want. These are the two hits, that's all I care about. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, a hit, you know, I, we didn't, I didn't know what a hit was. I, I liked the songs and, um, it didn't occur to me till much later on that uh, songwriting was was a you know had a financial reward that was comfortable for me yeah. at the time i wasn't thinking about that we're just trying to get the record out and get on tour and play the band it was all about the band and playing you know not about me becoming a songwriter etc right. you know yeah but you know it it, it kind of leads me to another thought because you, you know you have always come across as as just super cool, right? And sure of yourself, and and I, of course, I, you, you see, honestly, you seem like the type of person I could walk up behind and make a loud noise, and it wouldn't shock you. Um, but don't try it. <laughs> uh, you know, just just how green were you guys in those days in terms of what you knew, what you didn't? Know? I mean, now every kid's watched a behind the music or or seen, you know, you know enough on Instagram or on reality TV to feel like they know everything about the business and how it works. And we're a very jaded culture. And, you know, for, for you guys, just having, you know, learned what you learned off listening to records and, and reading, you know, magazines from time to time, you know, how, how new was this to all of you, especially coming to LA? Yeah. Oh, as Stan Lynch used to say, it was like rednecks in space. <laughs> uh, we were kind of like a deep forest Porsche green. We were greener than green. Yeah. <laughs> Although when it came to the band and playing, we pretty well were confident. But with the business and all that, we got out to L.A. 
you know, we gave away our publishing. We were, we were kind of naive, way naive. And we learned the hard way, you know, and, um, thanks to Tom mostly because he had a real business as it turns out, thank God, somebody in the band did. He had a good business sense and he could, he could smell a rotten deal, you know, and he, it didn't take him long to figure out that we need to get our publishing back and we need to get our record company, um, deal straight before we make any more records, which was, um, when we signed up with, um, MCA back in the day. And, uh, we went on a we went bank we went on a bankruptcy tour. <laughs> We're not going to record until you until you give us a fair deal. Huh. That was all Tom. That was all coming from him. Wow! Yeah. He surprised us all with his uh, his business um, uh, affinity, and he got it together pretty quickly. And we all just followed his lead. Well, I'd love to talk about "Stop Dragging My Heart Around," which you know I I kind of think of as like a, a Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers record, even though it was a Stevie Nicks with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers record, and that's another one that that you and Tom uh, collaborated on. Was that written for Stevie? No, that was not written for Stevie. It was going to be on our album, uh, ah. but I had written that demo to a drum loop. I learned how to make, you know, actual analog loops and tape it together. It was a loop of tape and then hold it up with a guitar slide and record it onto the machine for three minutes. Wow. And I made a loop of uh, that Rolling Stones song, um, uh, Honky Tonk Women, I think it was. It starts with the drums. Uh-huh. And so I just made a loop to have something good. I figured I could play along with Charlie Watts, you know, as long as I'm working on a song. <laughs> and I came up with the music and the chorus pretty much uh, the way they are. And uh, we wrote it and Tom sang it. And we were working with Jimmy Iovine and he was starting to do the Stevie record. And he had the idea that the song lyrics would be good as a duet. Hmm. And so he spearheaded getting it to Stevie and we, we graciously gave her the song. You know, we didn't know if it was going to be a hit. We, we still don't know what a hit is, but <laughs> it turned out to be a, a, a good song for her and us as songwriters. But uh, it was all Jimmy Iovine, you know, pulling the strings and making that all happen. The puppet master. Right. Wow. <laughs> It's one of those great songs where I always feel like, you know, rock and roll has to have an element of danger to it, you know? And yeah, it's a, it's a sassy lyric, you know, and it's, it's, it's people trying uh, to make a meal out of some wide eyed kid. I mean, yeah, yeah. Tom is fucking on his game. You know, that was such a great song and it does sound good coming from the, you know, back and forth between male and female characters. So Jimmy was right. And uh, I remember we had woman in love, which I also co-wrote with Tom. That was our single at the time. Right. And it was it was doing pretty well. And then she put her record out with Stop Dragging My Heart Around. And it completely just shot past our record and went to <laughs> whatever it did. And I remember seeing her in, the, um, in New York around that time when her single was taken off in a, ho in a lobby. And she walked by and said, hey, Mike, you know, our song's a big hit. You know, and the first thing out of my mouth was, yeah, it killed our single dead. <laughs> <laughs> and she got so hurt by that, you know, and I had to apologize. No, no, I'm really happy you know, for all of us. But I was just making a smart ass comment. Right, know, right. <laughs> those were heady days. You know, we were on a roll. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you didn't have to worry about anybody getting past. Uh, you got lucky. I mean, that was a, a number one on the Billboard rock chart. 
I'm struck by how synth heavy that song is. Did, did you guys feel any sense of trepidation about entering those waters with being such a guitar based yeah, band? Yeah. Well, we did. Yes. That was, uh, once again, my music started with my music. I had, I had made it my own drum loop by that point. And, uh, I was, I had a, one of Ben Mont's synthesizers in my room and, uh, I just came up with the chords, you know, I thought it sounded like days of our lives or something. I was not taking it too serious, right. but when I put the guitar on it, it started to sound like something. Um, uh, it's interesting you would mention that because we were trepidatious. Is that a word? Uh, sure. About synthesizers because we were a guitar band and there was a lot of that stuff going on and we didn't really want to be in that channel. In fact, I remember when we went to cut the track, I had a demo, you know, which is really just by accident, really good, had the groove and the sound. But when we went to make the quote unquote record, we, <laughs> we were get, trying to get that sound, you know, on the keyboard and and jimmy said oh we need to get a synthesis in here to to get us a sound so they they had some guy come down who was a synthesis oh, <laughs> with a synthesizer and he <laughs> messed around he said that's good right there leave it alone now let benmont play it you know so yeah and now what's interesting is now i like to do that song with my band hmm. and we do it without the synthesizer just wow. with it's almost like london calling with the guitar eh, eh, yeah. eh. and i kind of like it better that way you know, but it, it worked out good for us at the time. That was a good sound, you know, yeah. well, as a kid who grew up watching days of our lives on sick days with my mom, I will now never forget <laughs> that you just said that about the intro to, to that song. That, I will never listen to it the same way. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but it's a catchy little chord. So, yeah. you know, and it's just three fingers. I didn't really know how to play. So I was just going like that, you know, right. It's all you need. Yeah. There you go. Three fingers in the truth. Isn't that what they said? <laughs> I I have this memory. I think it's correct, but in my memory is not always correct. Uh, but I I remember I think seeing at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame like they had something where Tom had an early draft of lyrics for that song that was originally called "I Got Lucky," which is like a love song, and "You Got Lucky" is a total swagger. It's a totally different thing when you switch it. Uh, do, yeah. do you recall anything about when the... I found you? Yeah, yeah. How <laughs> did that? Point. How did that kind of morph from "I got lucky"? You know, I you never heard that. that. I never heard that that he had the "I got lucky" part. I, that's yeah. news to me. But yeah. uh, you know, he was good that way. He would do songs and bring in a lyric, and we would cut the tracks, and then at the last second, he would change a word or two and make it so much better. He was a genius at that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's news to me, but that's a good story. <laughs> yeah maybe it's even true swagger and a, a finger point in it which really kind of gives it some depth you know yeah you know another song that kind of has like a i don't know it's got just this wistful sense of danger even in its beauty uh to me is boys of summer and that's a song mm. that you know we're not talking about the heartbreakers now we're talking about don henley um and i watched yeah. a lengthy uh youtube clip where you talked about you know how that track came together i will butcher the story um but now that we've got you here with us, I can hand it off to you about how that song Boys of Summer came together. Well, once again, I think it was around the same time I had a synthesizer in my room and I was a Oberheim or something. And I got the chords on that, on that, you know, da, 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 with the left hand changing the note. And um, I made a four track demo and played it for Tom and Jimmy, but I didn't have the chorus. I had a, 
I went to a weird minor chord in my demo and they got there and they go, that sounds like jazz. And I go, yeah, you're right. I have to change that. They said, well, we don't really need it on this record anyway. So later on, Jimmy called me and said, Don was looking for a track. So I went back to that one and I, I put the major chords in the chorus and then it, it sounded better. So in Tom's defense, he let that one get away, but he didn't really hear the, the proper chords. <laughs> hmm. right. So, uh, and you know, Don came up with a great song to it. I was just kind of blown away, sitting back going like, wow, how lucky am I? You know, just <laughs> fell in my lap. <laughs> collaboration with Don continued on obviously beyond that you, you had other successes with him was it was it the heart of the matter I believe yeah that was a good song I like that quite a bit very simple uh moving chords and uh, once again I made a demo and uh he liked it we changed the key for his voice and uh cut it you know re redid the demo once again you know I, I used to just luck out and make these really good demos that had this charm to them and it was always a struggle in the studio. Okay, we're going to use that as a template, but we're going to make it better. We're going to get better sounds. And and then it was always like, well, God, it doesn't sound as good as the demo. We could right. try. We call it beat the demo. The game beat the demo. <laughs> and so we just keep beating at it until we do beat it. You know, but sometimes it was hard. And I have to imagine, you know, like a sense of surprise every time a lyrical direction comes into focus. You know, to, you know that song is so much about recovery from divorce and 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 relationship and, and all that kind of stuff which you know when you're making music the the, the palette is you know so wide and, and the canvas is blank to think about what it what it could possibly be um have you ever been shocked to the point where you thought i don't think that that's what this song really should be about <laughs> when anyone has has added a, a lyrical direction to one of your musical ideas fortunately the people i've worked with are so good hmm. i'm always just like amazed like oh my god you know thank god i didn't try to write the words to this because it's so much better than anything i could have come up with hmm. that happened a lot with tom and with those songs with don i mean you know he's a great lyricist and you're right um, a piece of music is a vibe and a feel and a, a mood and it's an open palette for a lyricist you know yeah. and they can sit back and see the movie in their head or whatever and go any direction they want and they i think probably writers like that probably like that because then they can just take liberties with it and do whatever they go in whichever direction they feel it should go and then when i hear it back i'm just like you know a kid on christmas like oh my god how look at this look what this yeah. guy did with my idea you know it's like thank you very very much yeah <laughs> wow well the 1987 Heartbreakers album, Let Me Up, I've Had Enough, uh, had five Mike Campbell co-writes on it, which was nearly half the record, and, and I think the most Mike Campbell songs that we'd seen on a, a Heartbreakers release up to that point. But uh, one of those songs, Jammin' Me, was another number one single on the Billboard rock charts. And and I think the first Heartbreakers release that, that came out where you and Tom had written with a, a third writer in the mix, and in this case, it was 
Bob Dylan. get to talk to many folks who have co-written a song with Bob Dylan on our show because there aren't many folks who have co-written a song with with Bob Dylan. Uh, tell us a bit about how that all came together. Once again, just, I don't know, magical, right place at the right time. I had the music. I gave it to Tom. And uh, I think I had a conversation. He said, I like this uh, music. I'm going to work on some words. And then he was meeting Bob. I, I was not there when they wrote it the lyrics um he was meeting bob at his hotel the next day and i guess they sat down and started pulling stuff out of the newspaper like joe piscopo eddie murphy whatever's popping up as <laughs> dylan might do you know right and so they worked on the lyrics together i don't know who wrote what huh. uh, but uh he called me and said well you know bobby and i have some words to your music it's called jam and me and said, oh great you know i wrote a song with bob and i wasn't even there <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah what a what a you know i'm a blessed person i swear things just fall in my lap like that but that yeah. was a, a great moment and i'm really proud of that song you know what's funny about that song for some reason tom didn't want to didn't wasn't too into the song he liked it and i think he was surprised when it was uh, a single and I don't think he was just feeling it. And then uh, we were in rehearsal and uh, we were going to learn the song. He said, I don't know if we want to do that one. And I said, well, okay, you know, whatever. And we did it. And we played it live a couple of times and it started to, to come alive. He started, I think he finally saw, oh, this, I see where this song's coming from now. I, I get it. And now I'm into it. And I remember we were on stage and we were playing the song and he came over and leaned to me and he goes, I get it now. I get it now. This is really good. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, well, yeah, and on the idea of talking about just being a a lucky guy, a blessed guy, you know, having the opportunity to to do these um, collaborations. I mean, you you've written a, a number of songs with Stevie Nicks that have have been on various albums by her. Some of which, you know, you were involved at the production as well, um, but. There are a couple of uh, notable cuts from 1991 um, that I'm interested in. There's Carphone, which you wrote with Roger McGuinn, and uh, there's Great Rain, which you wrote with, with oh, John Oh, yeah, Pryor. I love that song. Thank and, you. Yeah. You know, the, those are two guys. I mean, obviously, it's clear the birds are a huge influence on the Heartbreakers, so having the opportunity to write with a guy like McGuinn has to be, like, mind-blowing if you get back into the mindset of your teenage self. And then a guy like John Prine, who's right up there with Dylan in terms of just crazy, uh, you know, songwriting chops. Is there an intimidation factor or, uh, or, or sort of a nervousness factor that kind of helps fuels the creativity when you're collaborating with, with folks that have that kind of uh, reputation? Well, I'm sure there's an adrenaline factor. Yeah. If you're with someone that you respect and have looked up to and to have them sitting next to you going, let's work on this song. Like, 
okay. Like, but you have to, I learned, you know, like with Dylan, with a lot of people and Johnny Cash, that you have to just get past that, you know, get past that intimidation and awestruck vibe and just get down to work, you know? Yeah. And like with Roger, I had been hanging out with him, uh, working on some other stuff. So I was kind of comfortable with him and I had just the riff basically. And he went home and came back the next day and he had written a song about, uh, a car phone. And, uh, I think all I suggested was, you know, it'd be cool if somebody from space heard all this chatter and he put the bridge in about if there's any open space, what they'll learn about the human race will free be from listening to them on their car phone. <laughs> That's, so he finished the line, but that was the only, the rest of it was all his lyric and just my chords. Yeah. And the John Prine thing is one of my favorite uh, tracks. Actually, I heard it recently. It's really, really good. And it was a, just the music I had done. I was thinking of a JJ Kale groove because I love JJ Kale and um, yeah. I made the demo and I like the guitar. The guitar on it is really like spontaneous and groovy and, and greasy. And uh, Howie Epstein was working with John Prine. So I, I showed it to him and he showed it to John. And I wasn't there either. John just wrote the words over my music. Huh. Wow. So uh, I guess you could say I kind of mailed it in in a way, but I'm really <laughs> happy with that one. It's got a great groove. Tom Petty albums, you know, that I can think of that were just credited to Tom Petty, not Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. I'm talking about Full Moon Fever, uh, Wildflowers, and Highway Companion. You, and you participated in, in all of it, as you participated in Mud Crutch as well. Um, and, I, you know, obviously you've got differences in rhythm sections and differences in personnel, and which would create differences then in just like personalities and the way it all came together. But in terms of the songs themselves, what did you guys sort of differentiate and say, well, this feels like it's appropriate for a solo project. This feels like it's appropriate for the Heartbreakers or this is a mud crutch song. Were there things that were in, into, in stark focus where that question is concerned or was there some kind of blurring of, of those lines? Well, um, that would be more of a question for Tom because he usually made those decisions. The Wildflowers album uh, was not, and started out not to be a solo record. It was a, a break from the Heartbreakers and we were working with Rick Rubin. And so we just went in and started cutting things and the Heartbreakers were taking a break from each other. So other players were brought in by Rick to try and cut these songs with maybe a different approach. And then as it went along, it became obvious, well, this is uh, not really a Heartbreakers record because they're not all playing in all the songs, although they did show up here and there. And uh, I just helped them along with it. Um, uh, so, and Mud Crutch was Tom's idea. He wanted to get the original Mud Crutch back together. And I guess he wrote some songs with that in mind. And uh, the couple of tracks that I uh, offered were with that in mind. Hmm. Um, 
but typically a song is a song you know if it ends up in this lap or that lap if it's a good song it doesn't really matter yeah you know think about a song like uh, running down a dream which you know that's such an indelible guitar riff but there's there's a real economy to your playing and and particularly when it comes to the the way you're playing supports a song and I, I saw you a few years back at the joint here in LA. There's a night that Wadi Wattel does. Oh, um, yeah. But this night it was you and Mark Ford and David Rawlings. Um, and you guys all just cut loose, man. It was just like my, I'm surprised I left with ears still attached to my head. <laughs> and so it, it was clear to me on that night that you can shred with the best of them. But then I saw you with the Heartbreakers. And I watched your commitment to the parts and the way you played was a real commitment to those parts that we know and love. And even a song like Boys of Summer, that guitar part, you know, there's a difference between a part and a solo. Um, and particularly, it seems like you you play very much like a person who understands what the song needs. Um, as an accomplished guitar player, could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, well, it's a long way from the joint to Madison Square Garden. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I don't remember that evening at all. I mean, I remember sitting wow. in the joint a few times, but you I don't do remember not... me. <laughs> uh, I don't remember anything, <laughs> but I'll take your word for it. But I like Mark, and um, uh, so Mark Ford, and who's the other guy you mentioned? David Rawlings. Oh, David Rawlings. Yeah, we were. I was uh, hanging with him and Gillian a little bit that week, and we. I don't know. We jumped up, and I don't even know what we played, but it was probably a Dylan song or something. But. Um, uh, the the guitar parts yeah i mean i saw a quote recently from keith richards who is one of my heroes and it pretty well sums up your whole question and he said something like you know solos come and go but riffs last forever you know mm, yeah <laughs> and it's true you know there's a million you could throw a rock and hit a guitar player that can play up and down the neck at lightning speed and and blah 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 and all this and that but you know i did not grow up I mean, I, I, I eventually grew through the Hendrix era and all those great, uh, and I was influenced by him quite a bit. But before that, when I first started out, the kind of guitar playing that I was inspired by was song oriented, you know, Keith Richards, George Harrison, the Kinks, the Zombies, those guitar parts were, you know, the solos were short and the parts were complimentary, you know, to the song, not trying to show off how hot you are. And that's just the kind of stuff that I like. And when I, you know, when I write or when I play, that's just where my mind gravitates toward. You know, it's in my DNA, that that approach. And it's a very simple approach. But I, I think if, if you come up with a really good phrase, you know, that really serves a song, that's worth a lot more than just, you know, ripping up and down the neck. Yeah. 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 It's you, you, you play guitar like a songwriter, <laughs> which is a which is a compliment because uh, it's, it's not about theatrics. Well, not for me. I, I like, you know, I think people that are good at that, like Hendrix is amazing at that. Sure. I don't think anybody's touched him since really, but I appreciate that. And sometimes I'll go that way myself just to get out of my system, but it's not my go-to approach, you know? Right. Right. I'd rather go to, you know, what, what would Chuck Berry play? <laughs> <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> Well, I listened to some of the the stuff that you wrote with Tom, you know, like making some noise on the Into the Great Wide Open album or uh, You Wreck Me from Wildflowers and um, or even a song like uh, I Don't Want to Fight um, from the mm. Echo album from 99. I think that's one that you uh, wrote solo, actually. And, and all of those songs that I mentioned, 
they feel more muscular. They feel a little edgier than, than some of the other stuff. Um, just, and, and even listening to some of the dirty knobs stuff, I hear a little bit more, um, just kind of an, of an aggressive kind of rock edge. And I'm, I'm wondering if that's something that, that you kind of brought to the heartbreakers distinct from Tom kind of pushing him in a way towards a little rocking out a little harder. Uh, yeah, I think that it's an element of music that I brought to the band. I mean, Tom, when I first saw Tom, he was in a kind of a country rock band, kind of a Breeder Brothers style band. Hmm. And uh, I think he gravitates toward that type of writing, you know, Roger McGuinn, Beatles, Stones yeah. writing. Uh, and maybe, you know, my palette might be a little wider. I like guitars that are tougher from time to time there's another song in that vein called between two worlds which i really like that's really aggressive more of a you know amped up sound uh and the dirty knobs that you mentioned i mean it's a, it's a you know two guitar bass and drums band so we turn the guitars up a little bit to fill out the sound because we don't have a keyboard or anything mm, right and i we tended to, to lean towards songs that have more of a growl and a sustain than a clear ringing chime you know Although we do some stuff like that, but you're right. I think that, you know, or uh, I should have known it, stuff like that, that I came up with is built around, you know, a heavier type guitar riff, as opposed to say the waiting, which would be a pretty guitar riff. Yeah. And I think that's maybe how we balanced each other out a little bit. You know, uh, we just briefly touched on, on the fact that Mudcrutch reunited in 2007 and put out a couple albums. You know, we had a song that you and Tom co-wrote. They're, they're called Bootleg Flyer. And then yeah. on the second album, there was a song called Victim of Circumstance. And for a lot of people, that was the first time we had a chance to hear Mike, you know, behind the mic. How uh, excited slash reluctant were you to play the role of frontman? Um, you know, almost sort of like pre, you know, uh, foreshadowing this this role now in the Dirty Knobs. Well, at that time, I was frightened to death to get up <laughs> to a microphone. Uh, uh, Victim of Circumstance was actually a song that I had been doing with the Dirty Knobs in the bars, and I, I kind of felt it might fit the Mudcrutch album. I was kind of hoping Tom would have sang it, but uh, they everybody else was singing. They said, well, you should sing this one. So I did my best, but um, I was not uh, focused on being at the microphone at that time. I am now, and I really have found that I, I'm comfortable with it and I really enjoy leading the band. Uh, but that took a while. You know, that's, that's why it's good that the Dirty Knobs have been together for a couple of decades. It gave me a chance to get my feet uh, mm. in terms of being at the microphone. Uh, but uh, now I'm pretty comfortable with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Well, after touring as part of Fleetwood Mac in 2018, 2019 is when you released the, that first Dirty Knobs album, Reckless Abandon. Uh, and most of those songs were written solo, um, but there were a couple co-writes on the record, including a, a memorable collaboration with Chris Stapleton. Well, look at that clown, dressed up like Charles Dickens, speaking around like... Slim Pickens. If he was a woman, he'd think he was God's gift to man. Called her stick his head in a garbage can. Oh, fuck that guy. Yeah, fuck that guy. Ooh, it ought to be a crime. He ain't no friend of mine. Fuck that guy. Well, it's funny. That song is in our set list, and the crowd loves that song. It <laughs> plays itself, you know. They just start singing. They're, they've got a built-up you know, desire to just say, fuck that guy to whoever they might be thinking about. <laughs> and I don't, you know, he was out here, uh, and he sang on our first record on one song, too, which is tremendous. But we were writing some songs, and uh, he had the title. He said, you know, it's something everybody can relate to. And he said, but I don't want to, I'm a little embarrassed to write a song around it. And I said, well, I'll do it, you know. So I threw some verses together and we didn't and put a little JJ Kale kind of groove behind it and didn't take it that serious. It's really just kind of a chuckle. And then it's like, people like that song. It's ridiculous. And uh, so every night they just like, fuck that guy you know and they put their own <laughs> insert your asshole of your choice here you know it was really just kind of a uh, a chuckle like a joke a laugh but it it has some truth in it you know <laughs> when i i burnt up the interwebs sending the link to that video to a bunch of people because you had a guy walking around with a giant like covid cell head well that on. was the thing when when we wanted to do they wanted to do a video for it and i said really we're not even sure we're going to put that on the record you know because it's just a joke but he said no no and so uh I said, well, who is who is the most evil person you'd want to say fuck that guy to? And a, a few political names came to mind, but I didn't want to do that. Yeah. And I thought, well, the, the most evil guy out there now would be a, a guy with a COVID head, you know? And so <laughs> they, 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 they ran with that idea. And the video is really pretty hilarious. <laughs> um, well, you've actually written uh, a pretty solid handful of songs with with Chris Stapleton and there's a couple songs on his starting over album from 2020 Arkansas and watch you burn that you guys collaborated on and you know there there's a bit of a of a of a country strain we could trace there um, going back to uh, Lubbock or leave it which you wrote with the the Dixie chicks um, mm -hmm. and you, you talked a second ago about how, when you first met Tom, he was in a, in a kind of a country rock band and, and you were a little bit more of the, the bash it out rock guy. But, um, we also see this, a bit of this country, uh, thing that that's happened with you is, has country music, uh, been something that has more influenced you in, in later years that you've kind of come to embrace? Well, no, I've always embraced it. Uh, I grew up in Florida, you know, as, as Tom did and, yeah. uh. There was a lot of great country music when I was growing up. You know, George Jones, Tammy Wynette, Loretta Lynn, uh, Johnny Cash, uh, Rockabilly, but still country. Um, so many great artists. And that that music is is deep in my DNA as well. And uh, I'd like I don't I'm not enamored much with I like Chris Stapleton because he's got a rock and roll edge. And I like Margot Price because she does, too. 
I'm not that enamored with a lot of the modern uh, poppy country stuff. Right. But I love, and I'm an old guy. I love the old stuff. You know, you put on Tammy Wynette and I'm there. You know, George Jones, I'm going to listen to the whole song. You know, yeah. I just love that. And Hank Williams, I mean, all that stuff is some of the best music ever done, best songwriting. So that's always kind of in, in the back of my mind is part of me, I think. Sure. You know, I think I even hear that in in your lyrical approach. You know, there's there's a kind of a, a wry cleverness to a lot of the a lot of the things that I hear on this Dirty Knobs record. I think my favorite song on the record might be Cheap Talk. It's not love, is it? It's not love. It's not love, is it? It's just cheap talk, baby. Cheap talk, baby, yeah. Cheap Talk is a pretty simple song, and uh, we're not doing it live because the riff is so heavy. <laughs> and we're doing a lot of riff songs, and I just we we rehearsed it, uh, and it's just like, oh man, another heavy riff song that goes on for four minutes. But uh, it's a the music was uh, something I had done years ago on an analog tape, and my studio tech found it. I'd completely forgotten about it, you know, and I heard it, and I thought, well, this would fit good on the album, you know. And it's a it's a simple lyric, but it, it says it's, you know, has a point of view. And of course, Margot was around that week and she put some amazing uh, vocals on it, which really is cut without her. It's kind of not as much fun to do the song, honestly. Mm, right. But thank you for mentioning that. It's a, it's a good song. You know, it's like, you know, what's wrong with you, honey? <laughs> where's the love you know? <laughs> when i just i, I love you know, on these records how you know in a way sometimes you're like the the in and out burger of music to me because the the ingredients are still like you know the the menu's not so wide that you're just trying to throw all these different types of things to me but you just keep doing it so so well using guitars bass and drums um it, it, you know Aside from some of those synthesizer moments in the 80s, it seems like you've really stayed with that particular palette, but have found so many ways to make it interesting and to make it new. Um, th this this may be an unanswerable question, but how do you do that? <laughs> well, um, that's a good, a really good observation. And the truth is, um, I write a lot of different types of music, you know, uh, acoustic songs and some piano songs. I don't go to the synthesizer too often or i might use the mellotron so i've got all kinds of different demos that i've done and i have to thank george draculius a lot when i started doing the dirty noms record i played him all these songs of different styles and genres and he said you know put these aside for something else you should stick to the boogie stuff and the hmm. boogie rock stuff for this band hmm. and so he helped me zero in on what really works with the dirty knobs and how do you do that uh I don't know, just luck, I guess. Um, <laughs> you draw, you draw from what inspired you when you, you know, when you were mm. a kid. And like I mentioned before, I grew up in the '60s. I'm an old fucker, but those were great times for guitars and songs because everybody was, in my opinion, was so good. You know, so many yeah. great bands, great yeah. songs, instantly memorable songs. You know, and nowadays, I hear, you know, I'll hear. I don't listen to much new music because. I don't really like it much. It sounds generic and it sounds like it doesn't swing like the old records used to swing. And the songs, I don't remember them. 
Mm. I'll hear a song by some new band and I'll go, Oh, nice drum sound. Oh, you know, interesting guitar part. And, and then uh, when it's over, I'll go to tell them, uh, I'll say, Oh, I heard this song. And they'll go, well, what was it called? I go, God, I don't remember. <laughs> you know, right. The song didn't speak to me back in my day. You know, if you hear, you really got me, you remember yeah. it, you know, yeah. you yeah. hear house of the rising sun or, you know, satisfaction you know the song by the end of the song you can sing it you know yeah and i don't hear that these days i don't hear the the depth and maybe it's just because i'm old you know but i really uh draw from those uh sources yeah. and so if i'm doing anything that you mentioned it's just drawing from what inspired me you know and it's, it's yeah. just it comes out whether you like it or not and that's the stuff i like you know, I think Paul touched on this earlier in terms of the lyrical cleverness of some of the stuff on the on the Dirty Knobs records. And as we've kind of walked through some of the, the highlights of your career, you know, typically the way you've worked in the past is you write music and then you pass it on to, to Tom or, or Don Henley or whoever, mm -hmm. and, and they come up with some, some great lyrics. But here we've got a couple records with you know, super solid lyrics where it sounds like well, your guy's you. been writing lyrics for forever. It was it a situation in the past where if, if, you know, you took something to Tom and, and he maybe didn't want to do it in the heartbreakers that you would go away and, and write lyrics for that song. In other words, have you been a lyricist for a long time or is, are our lyrics a relatively new thing for you? It's a relatively new thing by relatively new. I mean, in the last, you know, 20 years, <laughs> But right. in the early days, it, it's almost like it's hard to, I mean, thank you for the compliment about the lyrics. I do take my lyrics seriously. In fact, I'm thinking of putting out a songbook, Dirty Words, Songs of the Dirty Knobs Lyrics, Love it. <laughs> which I think would be good. It could also be, you know, volume one, volume two, if you go on and on. But I take the lyrics very seriously and I, I mostly try to keep them simple. But occasionally, you know, I get I get into wordplay and, you know, Dylan-esque or, or whatever. I love the way he plays with words. And I try, that's my high bar, you know. I strive for that sometimes. But I find the lyrics um, really rewarding when you, when you stumble onto something that really says something. It, it's a real uh, magical thing because sometimes you start out with a, a lyric and you think it's going to, the story is going to go in this direction. And then you set up a rhyme and you go, oh, what rhymes with that? And then the rhyme is a cooler word than what you had before. So that takes the, the, the character in a different direction. And then the song just kind of evolves and morphs and comes out sometimes completely different than you started with much better, you know? Mm, yeah. And I really find that process fascinating and, and very rewarding when it works. Yeah, yeah. Are you a guy who who gets up every day and works on music in a in a disciplined way, or are you somebody who kind of waits for inspiration to strike? Well, I'm not a I cannot write on the clock, but I do find myself falling into patterns when I'm home. Like this morning, I woke up and I had an idea for a lyric, and I had my phone and dictated it on my phone. Um, so I'm always, you know, waiting for that switch to turn on. But yeah. uh, I have a routine when I'm home, which I've fallen into which i'll have you know coffee or whatever wake up feed the dogs and i'll wander into my studio and um, that seems to be a creative time for me early in the morning and then uh, i'll put a couple of hours into it or whatever and then go about the rest of my day and then maybe review it the next day um 
I don't ride on the road that often because I find my my energy seems to be tapped. Yeah. Uh, by the time I get to the hotel room, I'm spent. You know, last thing I want to do is try to write a song. Sure. But some people do write on the road. I mean, I have done it, but typically I write better when I'm home. Hmm. Um, but, you know, it's just songwriting. You, you have to keep your antenna open because you just never know when that brilliant idea is going to pass before you. And you got to be ready to grab it, you know. Yeah, that's uh that that's a definite great piece of advice for songwriters is keeping that antenna up and being open for for when those things come. That's that's great. I was out walking the dog this morning and I was thinking about this interview, you know, about songwriting. And a lot of people ask me, you know, where does it come from and how does it happen? And it is very magical and mysterious. But it it it, it th I thought about it today and I was thinking it's like if you picture uh, you're outside. And it's a normal light, you know, it's in daytime or whatever. And you've got, say, you've got a prism hanging there. And the sun goes through the prism and all these colors splash on the other side. That's kind of what songwriting is like, you know. Hmm. If, if you're awake and you see those colors, you know, flash through the light, it's your responsibility and duty and joy to grab them, you know. Wow. And that's kind of the way I look at the songwriting, you know. It's like if it, when, the, when the prism opens up, you know, just be ready to catch it, you know. That might be the recording I set for my alarm now. <laughs> from now on, I'm going to let you wake me up with that. <laughs> That's amazing. Go. Mike, we want to thank you so much for spending some time with us to talk about the Dirty Knobs and the Heartbreakers and the million other things that you've been involved with. I know that uh, just uh, to be unprofessional and be personally speaking now, Paul and I are total uh, Heartbreakers fangirls. So uh, <laughs> it's super, super cool to talk to you. But thanks, guys. You asked a lot of good questions and it was very enjoyable. And a lot of these interviews aren't, but this one was really good. So I appreciate <laughs> it. Thank you. You guys be safe. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. And of course, nothing beats a personal recommendation. Perhaps take a moment right now to text or email one friend who you think would appreciate what we do, and send them a link to our show, letting them know how much you enjoy it. As a reminder, you can sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.